Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The poem says, Human voices wake us and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. On Yule night, it has been customary in parts of Sweden from time immemorial to go on pilgrimage whereby people learn many secret things and know what is to happen in the coming year. As a preparation for this pilgrimage, some secret themselves for three days previously in a dark cellar so as to be shut out altogether from the light of heaven. Others retire at an early hour of the preceding morning to some out-of-the-way place, such as a hayloft, where they bury themselves in the hay, that they may neither see nor hear any living creature. And here they remain in silence and fasting until after sundown. Whilst there, there are those who think it sufficient if they rigidly abstain from food on the day before commencing their wanderings. During this period of probation, a man ought not to see fire but should this have happened, he must strike a light with flint and steel, whereby the evil that would otherwise have ensued will be obviated. And during the sixteen days that a Pima Indian is undergoing purification for killing an Apache, he also may not see a blazing fire. And that comes from the great old set of books by James George Fraser from the last century, The Golden Bough. And what I'm going to read from tonight comes from the first volume. The Golden Bough is 13 volumes, and two of those volumes are called uh, Balder the Beautiful. And the, uh, the first of those volumes on Balder the Beautiful, which is a reference to Odin's son, uh, concerns itself chiefly with the fire festivals in Europe, midsummer and midwinter primarily. And I wanted to read some of those here to you tonight. And I happened to look back in some of my old notebooks, and as far back as 2016, I can find a note to myself saying uh, on the long list of things to do, one of those things should be uh, something called Golden Bow Radio. And for the longest time, I thought it would be a great idea for a podcast to simply read from George Fraser's Golden Bow. And I'm happy that this will be the first time I've been able to do it here on Human Voices Wake Us. It has taken quite a long time. 
And the reason that I'm doing it actually is because of a long poem in progress that I'm working on called The Great Year. And the plot of the poem basically is that it takes place about a century from now, and it follows uh, four people, five if you count the talking severed head that one of them carries around with them. Um, it follows them basically from Slovenia to, I would say, about the French coast of Normandy, walking west, uh, north and then west along the coast, and then up the, I guess, the eastern coast of Britain, past Orkney, and then on to Iceland. And what these people do to pass the time, since the world has been emptied thanks to environmental disaster and war and whatever else you can think of, they don't meet with very many people and they don't meet with very many dangers either. But they feel called to go to Iceland for a reason that will be, that will be revealed uh, at the end of the book. And what they do to pass the time is they tell the stories from myth and poetry, the ones that I love so much. And many of the books, many of the chapters in this poem uh, are thematic. You have one dealing with creation stories, another dealing with love stories, another dealing with um, stories about the founding of cities or the founding of nations, things like that. And to me, it's always seemed to be something akin to a post-apocalyptic Canterbury Tales, where you have these people going on pilgrimage and telling stories as they go. And it's been a great deal of fun to do this. I've been working on it since about 2020, and the idea for it has been in my mind since about 2014. And one of the places that they end up going to uh, they first hear about as a rumor. It's a place called the Autumn Village, which I think is somewhere near uh, near Normandy. Um, I don't know if I have placed it um, specifically on a map or even if I need to. But uh, the book, The Great Year, uh, takes place over 10 chapters, and they don't reach the Autumn Village until the seventh book, the seventh chapter. And that's the part that I'm working on right now. And I've been waiting years to do this because I knew when they got here, I would use a lot of the information that Fraser has gathered on the fire festivals in medieval Europe. And they are wonderful uh, descriptions of the way people used to measure time and recognize the changes of the year these great, huge, beautiful communal experiences. And I suppose in one way, I should say as a caveat uh, that none of this is an excuse to look back with nostalgia on uh, this old world, this old, basically agricultural world. The thing that you come across when you're talking about the advent of uh, the Industrial Revolution, especially in England, is that sure, on the one hand, it brought an end to a certain way of life, and perhaps it brought with it a more stressful and more different and more unnatural way of living, living by the clock and by the machine. 
But I think it's just as well to say, and I think many scholars have said as much, that uh, life on the farm and agricultural life uh, in Europe and elsewhere in the Middle Ages and up to the Industrial Revolution, uh, that also was not some sort of um, some sort of romantic idyll. It was not easy. And I, I think on up to the old, not old, I guess they are old by now, 30-year-old PBS documentaries about uh, farming families in Iowa and the Midwest and what has happened to them in America um, just goes to prove that point. But still, that is not a reason to ignore these stories and these sources. And it's worth mentioning, too, that uh, a great deal of this is Fraser quoting someone else who has gathered the stories. And, uh, and what Fraser has done, and the real genius of what the Golden Bough is, is that he gathers the gatherings. He goes around and finds uh, there's the there are separate books on the the folklore or the midsummer festivals or the festival life in this area of France or this area of Britain or this area of Spain or this area of Italy or wherever it is and Fraser is the one to find all of those separate descriptions of these festivals and put them all in one book um, or in 13 books and for those of you out there who love T.S. Eliot and the Wasteland, um, you'll understand that for many, many years, getting a copy of the full edition of The Golden Bough was on my to-do list as well. And I still remember the day that we were able to get a copy. Uh, my wife and I were able to order a copy off of eBay. I believe it was in July of 2007. And for some reason that I can't remember, we were living in Brooklyn at the time, and for some reason, in the in the borough of Bay Ridge, and for some reason, the 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 post office would not deliver this huge box of the Golden Bough. They wouldn't deliver it to our apartment, and so I walked to the post office where it was being held in Sunset Park, in Brooklyn, and uh, I felt that I had, sure enough, earned my thirteen volumes of the Golden Bough that day because I picked it up there. I dragged it with me all the way to work in Midtown Manhattan on the subway and carried it all the way home with me again that night. And what a treat it is and what a gift The Golden Bough is. If anyone out there has a chance to read The Abridged or uh, just go through, read, read a volume a year from The Golden Bough and um, you will have a good time getting through all of them. And this is the first uh, of the of the festivals that I have highlighted here as being uh, especially good. It says, in one of the French provinces to the west of the Jura Mountains, the first Sunday of Lent is known as the Sunday of the Firebrands, an account of the fires which it is customary to kindle on that day. On the Saturday or the Sunday, the village lads harness themselves to a cart and drag it about the streets, stopping at the doors of the houses where there are girls, and they beg for pieces of wood. When they have got enough, they cart the fuel to a spot at some little distance from the village, pile it up, 
and set it on fire. All the people of the parish come out to see the bonfire, and in some villages, when the bells have rung the Angelus, the signal for the observance is given by cries of, To the fire! To the fire! And lads, lasses, and children dance round the blaze, and when the flames have died down, they vie with each other in leaping over the red embers. He or she, who does so without singeing his or her garments, will be married within the year. Young folk also carry lighted torches about the streets or the fields, and when they pass an orchard they cry out, More fruit than leaves, more fruit than leaves. And down to recent years at Laviron, in the department of Doubs, it was the young married couples of the year who had charge of the bonfires. In the midst of the bonfire a pole was planted with a wooden figure of a cock fastened to the top. And then there were races, and the winner received the cock as a prize. And you see this, this, beautiful, uh, this beautiful suggestion uh, all down the line that has to do with spring, don't we? We have the season of spring. We have the idea of the energy of fire, which could also be just associated with the fire of the sun or just of creativity and warmth. The, the, the earth warming itself and coming back to life. Uh, going and crying out uh, more fruit than leaves, more fruit than leaves, some sense of uh, magic to calling like that, of uh, gathering wood from everyone. Everyone is responsible for this regeneration and this rebirth and this fire that they eventually uh, do set. And the idea of people dancing around it, just the sense of not physical labor, but a physical enjoyment that is reflected in all of this. And also in the, the men's games, you might say, of the races and things like that. And finally, uh, just of, of marriage, uh, that the, that final fulfillment is also, all of these things are all gathered together in one place and in one time um, at the beginning of the season to to suggest or to hope or to help jumpstart the same kind of growth and fecundity in the earth. And here's another one. It says, uh, in Berry, a district of central France, it appears that bonfires are not lighted on this day, but when the sun has set, the whole population of the villages, armed with blazing torches of straw, disperse over the country and scour the fields, the vineyards, and the orchards. Seen from afar, the multitude of moving lights, twinkling in the darkness, appear like will-o'-the-wisps chasing each other across the plains, along the hillsides, and down into the valleys. And a page later it says this, On the same day, in some parts of Eiffel, a great wheel was made of straw and dragged by three horses to the top of a hill. Thither the village boys marched at nightfall, set fire to the wheel, and sent it rolling down the slope. Two lads followed it with levers and set it in motion again in case it should anywhere meet with a check or just be blocked somewhere and stop. 
in a few pages later is this little story. In some parts of the canton, they also used to wrap old wheels in straw and thorns, put a light to them, and send them rolling and blazing downhill. The same custom of rolling lighted wheels down hills is attested by old authorities for the cantons of Argot and Baal. The more bonfires could be seen sparkling and flaring in the darkness, the more fruitful was the year expected to be. And the higher the dancers leapt beside or over the fire, the higher, it was thought, would grow the flax. In the district of Freiburg and at Bersek in the district of Baal, it was the last married man or woman who must kindle the bonfire. Again, the association with marriage, a newly married person is already surrounded, one might say, by the magic or the association of new life, of fecundity, of growth. And why shouldn't you gather up all of those associations and have them be the ones to light the fire? This image of the wheel, too, this is really the thing that I wanted to capture in the great year. And I've already written scenes incorporating all of this stuff that I've read to you already. And the parts of the wheel are just so compelling to me. Um, this whole idea just of play as well. Uh, it, you could very well understand if all of this were associated literally with, uh, with examples or exaggerations of actual farm labor, of actual digging or whatever it is. Uh, but instead, it's associated with ritual and exaggeration and play and dancing. And in this case, in this most uh, brilliant way, with huge lighted wheels uh, made of straw and, uh, and, and thistles and thorns. And then they're set on fire and rolled down the hill as if the wheel is, again, in association with the sun. Uh, as if these young boys who are in control of the wheel might imagine themselves to have control over the sun or over these powers. You remember the line from Robert Oppenheimer after watching uh, uh, the Trinity test, uh, the idea that uh, suddenly he also, quite literally in his case, had the power had somehow taken the power of the sun, of what the sun does and can do and holds within itself. And he was able to replicate it out in the mountains of New Mexico. Um, this is an old, old human aspiration, but also just the wheel, the wheel of the seasons, the wheel of the year, uh, the wheel of everything that is encompassed in the year, uh, the agricultural round, uh, family life, village life, communal life, uh, religious life, the entire thing uh, is all right there. And here I made a note of something just from this one sentence. It says, uh, the custom of driving cattle through or between fires on May Day or on the eve of May Day has persisted in Ireland down to a time of living memory. And Fraser is writing in the, in the early 1900s or so. And the note I made there is chapter 15 in the book of Genesis, when uh, God and Abraham are sort of 
sussing out what exactly the covenant they're about to agree to is. And one of the most miraculous parts in that book uh, and in their discussions on what should, uh, what should this covenant be and how they come to an agreement of it is when Abraham uh, sacrifices a handful of animals and cuts the animals in half and uh, puts them on either side of a path. And there's that sense again of, of uh, the importance of m being able to move between flames in order to do whatever important thing it is uh, that you are doing. And here's a little note that Fraser has. He mentions that according to a medieval writer, uh, the three great features of the midsummer celebrations were the bonfires, the procession with torches round the fields, and the custom of rolling a wheel, those three things, the bonfires, the procession of torches around the fields, and the custom of rolling a wheel. And he explains that the custom of trundling a wheel to mean the sun, having now reached the highest point in its elliptic, begins thenceforward to descend, because of course that's what midsummer, excuse me, of course that's what midsummer is, isn't it? It is the longest day of the year, and as it rolls down the hill, it is suggesting that from now on, from now until midwinter, the nights will slowly be getting longer and longer, and day will be getting shorter and shorter. And you won't celebrate light again, the coming of light again, until midwinter. And this here is the longest description that I was able to find. Um, or I, I suppose my favorite long description of one of these, uh, of one of these uh, midwinter or midsummer festivals. And it says, in Lower Kantz, a village prettily situated on a hillside overlooking the Moselle, in the midst of a wood of walnut trees and fruit trees, the midsummer festival used to be celebrated as follows. A quantity of straw was collected on the top of the steep Stromberg Hill. Every inhabitant, or at least every householder, had to contribute his share of straw to the pile, and a recusant, that is, someone who refused to do so, uh, was looked at askance, and if in the course of the year he happened to break a leg or lose a child, there was not, uh, there was not a gossip in the village but knew the reason why. Your kid dies and you break your leg because you did not, um, you did not give a piece of wood to the communal uh, midsummer bonfire. It reminds me of uh, my last episode here where the Pythagorean uh, community, which refused to take part in that most basic Greek communal uh, uh, religious ritual, which is the sacrifice of animals, how they, how Greek society eventually just turned on them, or at least on the community of Pythagoreans in Italy, um, they knew the reasons why as well. And it says, at nightfall, the whole male population, men and boys, mustered on the top of the hill, and the women and girls were not allowed to join them, but had to take up their position at a certain spring halfway down the slope. On the summit stood a huge wheel completely encased 
in some of the straw which had been jointly contributed by the villagers. The rest of the straw was made into torches. That's a nice touch, too, that the torches and the wheel are both made from these contributions from everybody. And from each side of the wheel, the axle tree projected about three feet, thus furnishing handles to the lads who were to guide it in its descent. That's a nice image, too, that they have this very natural, literally a tree trunk, um, handlebars to hold on to while this thing uh, barrels down the hill. Uh, the mayor of the neighboring town of Sirk, who always received a basket of cherries for his service, gave the signal, gave the signal a lighted torch, and it was applied to the wheel, and as it burst into flames, two young fellows, strong-limbed and swift of foot, seized the handles and began running with it down the slope. A great shout went up. Every man and boy waved a blazing torch in the air, and took care to keep it alight so long as the wheel was trundling down the hill. Some of them followed the fiery wheel and watched with amusement the shifts to which its guides were put to in steering it round the hollows and over the broken ground on the mountainside. You can imagine what that would have been like. Uh, the great object of the young men who guided the wheel was to plunge it blazing into the waters of the Moselle. But they rarely succeeded in their efforts, for the vineyards which cover the greater part of the declivity impeded their progress, and the wheel was often burned out before it reached the river. As it rolled past the women and girls in the spring, they raised cries of joy, which were answered by the men on the top of the mountain, and the shouts were echoed by the inhabitants of the neighboring villages, who watched the spectacle from their hills on the opposite bank of the Moselle. That is just cinema right there. That is a cinematic scene to imagine. Um, the wheel going down the hill uh, towards the river, uh, the women and girls at the bottom of the hill letting up cries, the men at the top of the hill letting up cries, uh, the villagers, the neighboring villagers across the river letting up their cries as well and watching this tumbling, fiery wheel uh, going down the hill in the distance. Um, if the fiery wheel was successfully conveyed to the bank of the river and extinguished in the water, the people looked for an abundant vintage that year. And the inhabitants of Cons had the right to exact a wagon load of white wine from the surrounding vineyards. So there was a good reason to try, and I imagine that uh, there was a good reason to train for this beforehand. I wonder exactly how that would have happened. And it says, on the other hand, they believed that if they neglected to perform the ceremony, the cattle would be attacked by giddiness and convulsions and would dance in their stalls. That's a nice image, too, the cattle dancing in their stalls from sickness. Um, and what I turn this into in the great year is that uh, just before my travelers are about to set off from the coast of France, in their ship uh, up the eastern coast of uh, Britain and Scotland. What they do the night before is it is finally their turn to roll one of these flaming wheels down the hill. And the body of water they're aiming for is the Atlantic Ocean and the place where they are about to depart. 
And in a kind of moment of pathos that I hope I can get right, that I hope I can give the proper heft and uh, emotion to, what these people end up saying in this autumn village to my, to my travelers is that previously, as I've mentioned in these, in these stories I've read so far, all of this was done in order to make sure that next year's crops and next year's families and next year's life continued and flourished and just kept going in being. But what these people realize now is that the world has been emptied for more than a century. Um, the, the crops and life itself and just people uh, are not surviving anymore. And that what my travelers are doing heading to Iceland is perhaps going to a place which will uh, sort of flip a switch to allow the world to start all over again. And so they say uh, to my travelers on their way out that we are leaping over the flames. We are imitating the sun with these wheels. We are still going by the orchards, uh, yelling more fruit, fewer leaves and all of that. We're still, uh, we're still even pretending that the young people who are leaping over the fires and who are getting married, um, we're still pretending uh, that they will be married and that they will be alive for decades and decades together. But what we're really doing is imitating all of this fecundity, all of this energy, all of this stuff, and we are handing it on to you so that what you do uh, in the boat and on the way and in Iceland itself may succeed. And uh, I hope I can bring it out or bring it about in that way, bring the whole story off. Um, there's a few other ones here that are worth reading. Uh, one of them says, in the neighborhood of Bihil in Achern, the St. John's fires were kindled on the top of the hills. Only unmarried lads of the village brought the fuel, and only the unmarried young men and women sprang through the flames. But most of the villagers, old and young, gathered round the bonfires, leaving a clear space for the leapers to take their run. One of the bystanders would call out the names of a pair of the sweethearts, on which the two of them would step out from the throng, take each other by the hand, and leap high and lightly through the swirling smoke and flames, while the spectators watched them critically and drew omens of their married life from the height to which each of them bounded. Such an invitation to jump together over the bonfires was regarded as tantamount to a public betrothal. How do you like that? Uh, don't go jumping over any bonfires unless you are willing to get married. And you imagine that behind many of these couples, there was probably a relationship there already, maybe even um, the accidental pregnancy or so and that these rituals were only a way of solidifying what was already there. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts lately, especially one by the New York Times writer Ezra Klein on loneliness uh, in American society. It's something that I've devoted a lot of time to on this podcast as well. And this brings to mind uh, the idea of uh, couples sort of announcing their relationships, 
even their betrothals, in this extremely public way, in this extremely vital and vivid way of uh, leaping over flames and setting fires and doing all of this, um, it strikes me how, how different that is uh, from my memory of what early love was like in the late 90s in high school. And I can only imagine what it's like now where all of it is done through the interface of a phone. It's a different kind of public ritual. Um, and again, it's not something perhaps to look back to, to, uh, to resurrect, but it's interesting to see how these things um, have been handled over the years. I especially like the image of the old people of the town sort of standing around watching these young unmarried people leaping over fires and just sort of like Olympic judges standing off to the side and giving them a five, a seven, or a ten on, on their jumps or how well they kept holding hands as they leapt together. And whether it was synchronized or not, you think of synchronized swimming. And from all of that, drawing omens from, of their married life over the next few decades and how well all of this would succeed. Um, and this is a, a detail that is only a sentence long, but wow, is it a, is it a detail. It says, uh, at Quimper, at the district of Léon, chairs used to be placed round the midsummer bonfire so that the souls of the dead might sit on them and warm themselves at the blaze. And that's worth reading again, isn't it? Uh, at Quimper and in the district of Léon, chairs used to be placed round the midsummer bonfire so that the souls of the dead might sit on them and warm themselves at the blaze. And perhaps we think nowadays that in 2023 we're beyond such things as that. But I don't think I'm beyond it anyhow, and uh, I still find that uh, extremely moving. Um, here is, this is one that takes place in Spain. It says, all over Spain, great bonfires called Lumas are lit on Midsummer's Eve. They are kept all night, and the children, those are the children this time, leap over them in a certain rhythmical way which is said to resemble the ancient dances. And on the coast, people at this season plunge into the sea. In the inland districts, the villagers go and roll naked in the dew of the meadows, which is supposed to be a sovereign preservative against diseases of the skin. I could use a bit of that right now. I have some poison ivy. Maybe I need to go roll around naked in the dew of the meadows, although I'd probably be arrested. Uh, before I got back home. Um, let's see here. And this is one that takes place in Morocco. As I said, uh, Fraser gets everywhere. He pulls stuff from everywhere. I think I heard a anecdote once that um, he basically sent questionnaires. Uh, he, he lived in Oxford, I believe. And he just sent questionnaires out uh, all over the world to people who were, as it were, writing ethnographic reports on the ground 
or to people who had already written them and just asking them for information on all of this stuff. And didn't he just uh, get everything that he could? It says, um, one of the Berber tribes of Morocco, for them, uh, they light fires of straw on Midsummer's Eve, and they leap thrice over them to and fro. They let some of the smoke pass underneath their clothes, and married women hold their breasts over the fire in order that their children may be strong, in order that their children may be strong. The fire, the heat, the influence, the sun, uh, the strength of what fire must have meant uh, to people before uh, electricity. Um, it's perhaps impossible to think of now. Uh, the fire that you eat from, the fire, the firelight that you tell stories around, the fire that lights up the night that is dangerous, uh, the whole thing um, must have been incredible. Uh, so the women hold their breasts over the fire in order that their children may be strong. Uh, moreover, they paint their eyes and lips with some black powder in which ashes of the bonfire are mixed and in order that their horses may also benefit by these fires, they dip the right forelegs of the animals in the smoke and the flames or in the hot embers themselves. And they rub ashes in the foreheads and between the nostrils and the horses. And I just remember yesterday, just yesterday, I wrote the scene that steals that detail. And instead of the horse, they dip the, uh, the front and back of the ship into the embers so that it might uh, share in the, those associations of strength. You see here. Here are two nice, uh, and I suppose this seems as old fashioned as teenage girls talking five and six hours a night on the phone. Um, this says, uh, Bohemian girls uh, also, look into the Book of Fate at this season after a different fashion. What they do is they twine their hair with wreaths made of nine sorts of leaves, and they go, when the stars of the summer night are twinkling in the sky, to a brook that flows beside a tree. And there, gazing on the stream, the girl beholds, beside the broken reflections of the tree and the stars, the watery image of her future lord. There's a reason for these things not to be resurrected, um, or at least not tweaked slightly. Uh, the watery image of her future lord. Uh, and in Prussia, girls go out into the fields on Midsummer's Day, gather mullion, and hang it up over their beds. And how about this? The girl whose flower is the first to wither will be the first to die. And that probably keys into all the dread and uh, emotion and death obsessedness of, uh, of, uh, of teenagers at all times and in all places. Let's see here. Two other little things here. Um, this says, uh, uh, one of the sources named Olas Magnus tells us that in Livonia, not many years before he was writing, a noble lady had a dispute with her slave on the subject of werewolves, she doubting whether there were any such things, and he maintaining that there were. 
and to convince her he retired to a room from which he soon appeared in the form of a wolf. Being chased by the dogs into the forest and brought to bay, the wolf defended himself fiercely, but he lost an eye in the struggle. The next day, the slave returned to his mistress in human form, but with only one eye. I think of that childhood, uh, that great movie of my childhood, Gary Busey and Corey Haim, uh, Stephen King's Silver Bullet, where you finally learn the uh, the identity of the werewolf in the movie, and he turns out to be the local priest. For the same reason, his his eye has been taken out, and they see him the next day with only one eye. Um, and again, it happened in the year 1588 that a gentleman in a village among the mountains of Auvergne, looking out of the window one evening, saw a friend of his going out to hunt. He begged him to bring him back some of his bag and his friend said that he would. Well, he had not gone very far before he met a huge wolf. He fired and missed, and the animal attacked him furiously. But he stood on his guard, and with an adroit stroke of his hunting knife, he cut off the right forepaw of the brute, which thereupon fled, and he saw of it no more. He returned to his friend, and drawing from his pouch the severed paw of the wolf, he found to his horror that it had turned into a woman's hand with a golden ring on one of, his, on one of the fingers. His friend recognized the ring as that of his own wife, and he went to find her. She was sitting by the fire with her right arm under her apron, and as she refused to draw it out, her husband confronted her with the hand and the ring on it, and she at once confessed the truth that it was she, in the form of a werewolf, whom the hunter had wounded. Her confession was confirmed by applying the severed hand to the stump of her arm, for the two fitted exactly. And the angry husband delivered up his wicked wife to justice, and she was tried and burnt as a witch. Now, uh, if you have the time to go through the Golden Bough, you will find many vivid brilliant, terrifying, horrifying stories, just like that one, stuff that you will never quite forget. And this is the last thing I'll read from Fraser's Golden Bough. Again, this is from volume one of uh, Baldur the Beautiful, The Fire Festivals of Europe and the Doctrine of the External Soul. They don't do uh, book titles like that anymore now, do they? Uh, the Fire Festivals of Europe and the Doctrine of the External Soul by Sir James George Fraser, OMFRS, FBA. And this is the last little bit that I'll read to you tonight. Uh, that the Yule Log, now we're, now we're, uh, now we're at midwinter, uh, that the Yule Log was only the winter counterpart, counterpart of the Midsummer Bonfire, kindled within doors instead of out in the open air, on account of the cold and the inclement weather of the seasons, was pointed out long ago by our English antiquary John Brand. And it's nice that his last name is Brand, isn't it? And the view is supported by many quaint, the many quaint superstitions attached to the Yule Log, superstitions which have no apparent connection with Christianity, but carry their heathen origin plainly stamped upon them. But while the two celestial celebrations were both festivals of fire, 
The necessity or desirability of holding the winter celebration within doors lent it the character of a private or a domestic activity, which contrasts strongly with the publicity of the summer celebration at which the people gathered in some open space or some conspicuous height, kindled a huge bonfire in the common, and danced and made merry round it together. And I've written in the margins there uh, the idea of indoor music. I want to steal that detail as well for my story in the great year and for my travelers, that the, the, the chapter where they are in this village will alternate between these great, huge, open-air, communal, shared events, and then these more private, uh, closed-in, shut-in um, uh, events as well. And I should just like to say that I think for the next year or so, I think I'll be able to finish the great year in the next year. I think that a great deal of this podcast and its companion that some of you may have noticed uh, over at Substack will be devoted to things that are connected directly to the great year and my researches and my reading into it. And I hope that will be a sort of fascinating focus to have uh, over the next year or so. Um, in this case, it will, in many cases, just be more of the same, more mythology, more poetry, but it may be geared or just have more comments as to where I'm going with the story of my characters. And I should say that if you feel like supporting this podcast in any way, or supporting its companion piece over at Substack, or if you even would like to, at some point, uh, take part in something like a Zoom reading from the great year, um, which is something that I would definitely be open to, uh, send me an email, leave a comment wherever you, wherever you find this episode, wherever you uh, read my stuff over, over at Substack and all the rest of it. Um, I think this can be a great, a great thing to share with people in a world where many of these things are just considered colorful, but just old superstitions. I don't think that they are. And perhaps that's the way to bring it into the world slowly over the next year, just with these details and uh, these bits about seafaring and wandering and folk tales about werewolves and fire festivals, and how people used to tell time, uh, note the year, uh, tell the stories of their families and of their peoples and just of their lives. And so I hope you've enjoyed this tonight, and I will see you next time. Thank you very much for listening. Any comments? or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.